open God's holy word to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Our focus this morning will be on verses 12 through the first part of verse 18. I'll be reading verses 12 through 26. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, Praise be to you that there's good news to be proclaimed. And forgive us of how often we allow such small things to derail us from the joy and thanksgiving and contentment that should characterize us because of this good news. Grant grace now that when Christ is proclaimed, it would not concern us Who else is involved insofar as Christ is proclaimed? May our hearts rejoice, center our joy, our purpose, our hearts on Christ today, Lord. In His name we ask this, amen. Our text breaks into two halves, verses 12 through 14, first part, verses 
15 through the first part of 18, second part. And these two halves have a two within them. So you have two twos, uh, two pairs, two gospel twos, a pair of gospel doubles. Anticipating something of the second set of twos, say this, there, there are in most areas of life, two kinds of fans, two kinds of people who would appreciate or enjoy things. That could happen in literature, film, music, art, but let's just take baseball as our example. Two kinds of baseball fans. The first kind is the more common. He may enjoy the game, but he loves his team. And the second kind is the more rare. He may enjoy a team, but he loves the game. The the first, the, well, the way you can distinguish the two is this. Whenever, whenever the game is over, no matter how amazing the game was, the first kind of fan will walk away devastated because too much of his identity is attached to his team and the game. The second kind, while he will be saddened, my team didn't win, can walk away talking about, even so, that was an amazing Game, one I'll remember, one to be remembered. And simply because we take up holy things doesn't somehow make us immune from such vices, doesn't build a force field around us. We see the same kind of thing in the church. I'm afraid it's more common to find Christians who quite often what really gets them excited are matters concerning their team rather than, if you will, the game. The team might be musical preference, might be genre, is what I'm thinking of, the flavor, the atmosphere. It might be um, certain, certain ministries. It might be even good Things like a specific kind of theology that you're persuaded is right, but anything that just alters from that in the slightest, yet it keeps true to Orthodox Christianity, you don't feel as if you can rejoice in. You, you have nothing good to say about it. What I hope is that by God's grace, by His Word, by His Spirit, we can come to rejoice in the game, more than we do our team. Matters not for watching amateurs who are playing just because they want to play, and they love it, or professionals who we know are in it for glory and money, we can still rejoice because the game is being played. Paul, having finished his opening, says that he wants the Philippians to know something, verse 12. I want you to know. This phrase is a common one throughout Paul. It's not only common in Paul, it's common in, in ancient letters, so much so that it came to have its own name. This is known as a disclosure formula. It's not anything 
grand, I want you to know disclosure formula. But most of the time, whenever you see it in Paul, it occurs in the middle of his letter, somewhere in the body, to transition to a different topic. But here, Paul just transitions altogether to the body of his letter. It's a, it's a bit striking, but it shouldn't shock us when you understand why this letter was written. Why, why is this letter here? Well, the Philippians know that Paul is imprisoned, and he needs help. And so they send him a gift. And having received this gift, now Paul sends this letter in reply. And so the very nature of the letter, the, the way it's come about, you would expect Paul is going to inform them. What about himself? They've been concerned for him, and so they're expecting Paul now to say how it is with him. That's what they're expecting, and it appears that that's what Paul is going to tell them. I want you to know that what has happened to me. What's happened to Paul? There are three primary options on the table as to where Paul is imprisoned at this point. The most prominent being Rome, less so Caesarea, and then there's a few people that make an argument that's really thin, in my opinion, for an Ephesus imprisonment. Those are the kind, and I just think they want to get and be seen as really creative. I think, though, as we go through Philippians, especially even as we look at our text today, that Rome becomes the clear option. We can't be absolutely certain that it's Rome, but it's highly likely, and so Understanding that high degree of probability here, this is what I believe has happened to Paul. What's happened to him? The churches among which he's planted and ministered have been giving a collection for the needy saints in Jerusalem. Paul, having received those, makes his way there to give this gift to them. So, having received this gift from the Philippians, what's happened to Paul all began with him bringing a gift to the saints in Jerusalem. And so bringing it there, he's found in the temple. When he's discovered, they bring him outside of the temple and begin to beat him. The Romans, thinking he's causing some kind of uproar, take him. The Jews, plotting to kill him, bringing false accusations against him. In response, Paul appeals to Caesar, so it's off to Rome he goes, suffering shipwreck along the way. And so he's been imprisoned now at this point for a number of years. That's what happens to Paul. And so this having happened to Paul, what state is Paul in now? He doesn't go on to tell you about the state of Paul. He goes on to tell you about the state of the gospel. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul says, don't worry, Philippians. The gospel's advanced. But it works something like this. Imagine a, an agent, a secret agent, who is traveling through hostile territory carrying critical information, and becomes severely injured. You're a CO, he makes contact with you, and the first words, you, you understanding something of the situation, his first words are, don't worry, the papers are secure. And you both breathe a sigh of relief. 
because you know that that information is more important than either one of you. Something like that is happening here. That's why Paul is expressing himself the way he is. Remember, he has said that he and the Philippians are partners in the gospel, verse 5. It's the gospel that's critical to their love, their fellowship, their joy. It's bigger than both of them. And so although Paul hasn't told them, told them how it is with him, understanding the, the nature of their relationship and their partnership, whenever he says, don't worry, the gospel is advancing, he has told them how it is with him. Now his soul is triumphant, jubilant, and rejoicing, though his body may be wrecked and in poor shape. matters not because the gospel is advancing. This is the same Paul that as he was en route to Jerusalem, met the Ephesian elders. He knows what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And he tells them, I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, something's a bit obscured by the ESV at this point with the word really that comes out clearly in the King James. I would, ye should understand, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Rather, what you would expect to squelch the gospel only serves to further the gospel. What you would think would squelch it amplifies it. But it should be no surprise to us that the message of Christ saving from the cross is advanced not simply despite suffering, but precisely by suffering. The gospel advances. That's what it does. The book of Acts is a book full of two things. The persecution of the messengers of the gospel and the propagation of the message of the gospel. Acts 6-7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Acts 12-24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 19-20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Saints, the messengers may be bound, but the message never is. God has unleashed and unfettered his gospel on this world and no man can chain it. While Paul, in Colossians, requests prayer for an open door for the gospel, we in application of that too often in our prayers, what we're really asking for is for a red carpet for ourselves. Brother Andrew, known as God's smuggler for his work in getting Bibles behind closed doors, for the most part of his life, what would have been the Iron Curtain, wrote, there's not one door in the world closed where you want to witness for Jesus. 
Show me a closed door and I will tell you how you can get in. I won't, however, promise you a way to get out. Whether you get out or in, you can be assured that the gospel of Jesus Christ will advance. God will gather His people from every tribe, people, and language. You might not see the fruit of it. You might not get to enjoy any harvest yourself, but know that God will advance His gospel and gather His elect. The gospel of Jesus Christ will advance, increase, multiply, and prevail mightily. So Paul wants them to know that what has happened to him has served to advance the gospel. And he goes on to tell them two ways that the gospel is advanced. First, by his imprisonment, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard that his imprisonment is for Christ. This is one place where the Greek isn't entirely alien to us. You have it as a footnote in the ESV. The New American Standard just does a the lightest of translations, barely bringing it into English, and yet many of you can understand it. The gospel is advanced through the whole praetorium, or the praetorian guard, the imperial guard, the, the personal bodyguards, as it were, of Caesar. The elite special forces dedicated to the emperor. This is one of the strong reasons it's argued that Paul is imprisoned in Rome at this point. And yet it's also one of the reasons that some argue that Paul can't possibly be imprisoned in Rome. Because they argue the Praetorian Guard was some 9,000 strong. Can't possibly have made its way through the whole Imperial Guard. And we do know that segments of the Imperial Guard were stationed in other cities. So it makes more sense if it's gone all the way through. It has to be a smaller group. Paul was in a different city. Well, Paul at this point, it's clear we read on, is expecting trial and release soon. He's been imprisoned for a while in Rome. The the wheels of Roman justice turned slowly. It wasn't as as if Paul would have been a high priority to Caesar, you see. And what this means, as Paul is waiting for this, start doing the math. Paul would have been imprisoned under house arrest, under Roman guard, having a Roman guard chained to him, shackled to him, 24 hours a day on four-hour shifts. I'm not saying that he worked his way through all 9,000 guards, but he worked himself through enough of those guards that word got through the whole imperial guard as to why Paul was there. And the reason why Paul would have been hot locker room talk, I think will be made clear in just a bit. But it also, we're told, became known to all the rest. Who are all the rest? Well, Can't be certain again, but I wouldn't be shocked to learn from Paul's lips one day that it relates to what he speaks of in 422, the saints of Caesar's household who send their greetings to the Philippians. Are you beginning to see why Rome is not a far-fetched hypothesis for exactly where Paul is imprisoned at this point? Now, why, why this would have been such a viral topic in the... Praetorian guard locker room, think is plain in why, what Paul says his imprisonment is for. What's become known to them is that he's imprisoned for Christ, or more literally, 
He's actually imprisoned in Christ. The Christian Standard Bible puts it this way. It's become known that my imprisonment is because I am, it's not for, literally it is in Christ. The gospel is not simply a message that Paul suffers for. It's not a cause he suffers for. It's a person that he suffers because he's in union with. This world expressed its attitude towards Christ and crucifying Him. God vindicated Him, raising Him from the dead. And Paul says, I'm in union with that Christ. That's why I'm imprisoned. It's because I'm in Christ. And, and you see, whenever he says the gospel's advanced, and the reason it's, it's advanced is because it's become known throughout the imperial guard that I am in Christ. I'm in prison because I'm in Christ. And you want to say, well, them knowing the reason why you're imprisoned is not the same as sharing the gospel. But whenever you, you begin to reflect on, if they know that Paul is in prison for this theological reason that Paul is in Christ, he's in union with Christ, you see how it's assumed that Paul has not just shared the gospel, he shared the gospel at a significantly deep level. Christ crucified and risen from the dead, I'm in union with the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father now, having atoned for sin and is Lord over all and will redeem all things. Like All that's being assumed to some degree. Why would this be such hot locker room topic? Because Christ is confessing this. Jesus is Lord. And this is an elite group of troops. Hand-picked. The whole Roman world confesses Caesar is Lord. These would be the ones who most exultantly would speak of Caesar as the Lord and Savior of Rome. And Paul is speaking of the one who is Lord and Savior of the world. So learn this. If you're ever in prison, let it be for this same reason. And evangelism will be easy. So what are you in for? I'm in here because I'm in Christ. Paul tells these Romans that he's shackled to, that the reason he's in there is because he's shackled to Christ. As this is being explained, I don't think the Philippians, what's, what's happened to me has served to advance the gospel. I don't think these... These Philippians are, though Paul says, has rather served as though they would be shocked. I don't think they're shocked at all. I think they hear this and you wonder how many heads turned with a smile to the Philippian jailer. Of course, what you would think would squelch the gospel God is using to advance His gospel. Saints, here is a truth that we'll see runs throughout this letter that speaks to what is empowering and behind and underneath this joy-filled, thankful, content Christian life. And it's this union with Christ. Union with Him in His sufferings and in His resurrection. It doesn't matter then what happens to us. To live as Christ, to die as gain. We can walk forward knowing the gospel will advance. Christ will be exalted. But second, 
the gospel is advanced, Paul says, because the brothers in Rome have become emboldened by his imprisonment in Christ. So the occasion of their boldness is Paul's imprisonment, but the source of their boldness is the Lord. Verse 14, courage is contagious. Christian courage is contagious. Courage produces courage. This is the double-edged sword of persecution. It will mow the grass, but there's a chance you might strike a rock. And if you strike a rock, there's a chance there could be sparks. And if there are sparks, there's a chance there could be a fire. Bloody Mary, between the years 1555 and 1558, burned over 300 Protestants. Those are just the ones she burned. This isn't counting the numbers of, uh, that were just imprisoned and, and suffered in other ways. 300. Among the most notable were the bishops Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. And as they were in Oxford being led together toward the stake, Latimer cried out, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. For we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And it was such martyrdoms then that John Fox compiled in his book of martyrs. A record of martyrdoms that produced more martyrs. Their courage produced Courage. It spread not just a Protestant faith, but a courageous Protestant faith. And it will be soon made clear as we journey along in chapter 1 that Paul wants the Philippians not simply to know this intellectually, but to know this experientially. He doesn't want them to know this about Paul. He wants them to know this themselves. And so he writes to them in, in 27 through 30, "...only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ." So that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. Do you see, whenever they're threatening you, and you keep striving side by side, not frightened, but with the kind of joy that you see Paul evidence here. It's a sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. Live as Christ to die as gain. Paul goes on, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Paul wants them to know this. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Saints, may we know this and may we sing from our depths that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. But, 
Coming now to the second set of pairs. That, that first set of, the first two that we came across are in harmony, both serving to advance the gospel. The second set, though it's teasing out something in the first, contains a contrast. Not all who are so emboldened to preach Christ do so with true hearts. Now, it's critical we understand precisely what Paul is saying here. He's not speaking of something similar to the situation you have in Galatia where a false gospel is being proclaimed. Paul would show no mercy to that. Nor is it what we see in Corinth where we have false apostles. Paul assumes that these are genuine brothers. We don't even have an instance of of what Paul would say, false brothers preaching the true gospel. He gratuitously, graciously assumes they're brothers, but they're preaching the true gospel with false hearts. And if you can't fathom that, I wonder if you've ever served in any capacity in the church. God... Have mercy on me, on all of us, I have no doubt, who have so often used true gospel ministry. It doesn't have to be in the light in any way either. It can be a gospel conversation with someone else in the church. And you take up spiritual things and your your mixed aim, if not even your pure aim, your mixed aim can be in there for you to make much of yourself and not simply make much of Christ. But here, these are brothers that it's more more of the general characteristic and flavor of, of there's a sinful action that's taking place in them in the proclamation of, proclamation of the gospel. It's not something that's mixed in, that they're repentant and sorrowful of, that, that creeps up there, that they're fighting. This is something at this point, it's just characterizing their proclaiming of the gospel and the reason they do it. And Paul presents the, the contrast, these, the second set of twos, he goes through it twice. Some preach Christ from envy, envy and rivalry, others from goodwill, verse 16. So it's like the bitter second string quarterback that feels he's overlooked, underappreciated, not the coach's favorite, but now because of an injury, it's finally his chance to shine. Paul's out of the picture. Now it's time for someone to see me and my giftings. That's the kind of person that they're not competing against the world, they're competing within the church. (laughs) They don't even love the t- they, don't, it's, they don't love the game supremely. They don't even love the team supremely. They love themselves. In contrast, those who preach from a goodwill, verse 16, beginning the second set of contrast, do so out of love, knowing why Paul is here for the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They do it out of love, knowing. Love, knowing. Remind you of Paul's prayer for the Philippians? Verses 9 and 10. It is my prayer that your love 
may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. So here are these these people who are motivated by love, and coupled with their love is knowledge that Paul is here for the defense of the gospel. And with their love and knowledge, they discern what is excellent, and they proclaim Christ. That's what's driving them. In contrast, this other group is not only selfish, verse 17, doing this out of selfish ambition, but they think they will afflict Paul. How do they believe they will afflict Paul by preaching the gospel? What sort of twisted reasoning is involved here? Well, they think of Paul in the same way that they think of themselves. They're doing this for their own glory. Paul was doing it for his own glory. And so now that Paul can't get that glory and the glory comes upon us, this will afflict Paul. They think that Paul's concern is not so much to see the game advance, but personal recognition and accolades and records. They're the ones starving for attention, for recognition, for conference invites, for sermon downloads. They're the ones that want all this, and they think of Paul as they do themselves. This is the kind of prison that spiritually immature persons can lock themselves up into, and they begin viewing their brothers in light of their own hearts and deception. But Paul is not afflicted in the least. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, not them, in the proclamation of Christ, I rejoice. Now Paul here is speaking to the Philippians. He's not speaking to these insincere brothers. If he were, I believe he'd tell them something like, you cannot keep preaching Christ And remain selfish. As you are right now. In your motivation to do so. More dangerously. You cannot remain selfish. In this way. And keep preaching Christ. Something will give. Nonetheless. Learn this. It is far less concerning for an insincere man to preach the true gospel. And notice this, Paul doesn't identify, he doesn't name names. I think Paul just knows that this is happening. He's not pointing any fingers, he just knows it. Know this kind of thing happens, you won't always know who. You won't get it right, you can't see the heart. But no doubt there's insincere preaching Of Christ that happens out there for self-glorification. But don't miss this. It is far less dangerous for an insincere man to preach the true gospel. Than for a sincere man. Him himself might appeal to you in so many ways. He seems so sincere and genuine. For a sincere man to preach a false gospel. The message is more important than the messenger. It's because Christ is preached. Paul rejoices. Where these self-seekers are concerned for themselves, Paul shows no such self-interest. It's not me versus them. It's the gospel of Christ. And I don't care how their methods are muddled. If the gospel is clear, I rejoice. 
and the preaching of the gospel. If Christ is preached, let us rejoice. When Christ is preached, be it at Falls Creek, at some Armenian church, by some skinny jean wearing hipster popular pastor, whatever else there might be worthy of critique, whatever else you might with genuine concern and out of love and truth say, listen, I'm concerned. You, you preach the gospel here and I'm thankful for that. But the things you're doing over here, I'm afraid, subvert and outshine the gospel in all these ways. Yes, do all that. But howsoever much the gospel is preached, if it's preached in its truth, rejoice! Get over your criticism and your selfishness and your self-glory and wanting to see your team get all the glory. Rejoice that Christ has held forth. Or can you only rejoice when it's your team? If it's Ligonier, we can rejoice. But if it's Lifeway, there's reason for critique. In so many of these areas. But if Christ is held forth saints. If Christ is proclaimed. Rejoice. When George Whitfield. Was pressed. By friends to start a denomination. Or a movement. In his own name. He said let my name be forgotten. Let me be trodden under the fit of all, feet of all men, if Christ may thereby be glorified. If we have something of that spirit, it won't matter who preaches Christ. It will matter if Christ is preached. During the Great Awakening, in contrast to the Holy Club from which... Whitfield and Wesley and others came. In contrast to the Holy Club, you had what would later be termed, mocking that, as hellfire clubs that would mock, ridicule, obstruct the revival. And at one tavern among such a group, a Mr. Thorpe stood up to outdo his fellows in mimicking and mocking George Whitfield, or Dr. Squintum, as so many uh, called him because of his, his lazy eye. He began by reading Luke 13, 3. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And, and Whitfield had a dramatic flair, and you could see that he would make for easy mockery. But Thorpe, as he went on to mock and mimic Whitfield in his preaching of the gospel, was converted. By some accounts, can't be certain of these, but it's said that others hearing him mock and mimic Whitfield were converted. He went on to become a minister. I'm not saying we should rejoice when the gospel is mocked and mimicked. That should bother us. But I think that illustrates this. That whenever the gospel is preached, we should rejoice because we understand, as Paul told the Romans, it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation.
you fail to sense joy, to anticipate joy in the preaching of the gospel, I hope this will help. So far, I've been preaching about preaching Christ. Let's look ahead just briefly to chapter 2 and see, let's, let me preach Christ. Chapter 2, 6 through 11. Christ, He, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Thereby, therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ in the form of God. The eternal Son, eternally begotten of the Father. John put it this way, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. Eternal Son of God humbled Himself, emptied Himself, took the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men. John went on to say, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Galatians says that He came under the law. The one of whom the law was an expression of His very character, took the form of a servant, becoming man, and came under the law. So know this, you don't need a Jesus simply to die for your sins. You need one to live for your righteousness. In the first Adam, you're counted a sinner. You need a second Adam who under him you can be counted righteous. So he lived under law, a servant unto God, achieving all righteousness for us. And that life of obedience climaxed in him walking willingly to the cross. To drain down to the dregs the bitter cup of God's wrath against sin. Offering up His life as a sacrifice to make propitiation, satisfaction of the holy justice of God against our sins. But it was not possible for death to hold Him. Because He Himself is the life. And because He had offered up such obedience unto God, the Father resurrecting Him, exalts Him, and bestows upon Him the name that is above every name. And He will return. And all will bow before Him, confessing such to the glory of the Father. Do you see? The Gospel is Christ. The Gospel is Christ. That the eternal Son It's Christ in every aspect. It's God, the eternal Son, in His incarnation, His humiliation, His obedience, His crucifixion, His resurrection, His ascension, His session, and His return to make all things new. The gospel is Christ. And so if you're properly humbled before that message, if you get over yourself, if you're infatuated with Christ, if you're centered on Christ, and you don't care who's preaching Christ so long as it's Christ 
preached. You don't concern yourself so much with what their motives might be insofar as you're just a brother and you want to warn them. They may get some things wrong, but overall, if Christ in truth is basically preached, you rejoice. Rejoice knowing that no selfish messenger can outshine the message of Christ crucified and risen for sinners. It doesn't matter how twisted and selfish and self-glory seeking they are. They are bigger than Jesus. They can't outshine Him. So preach Christ and preach Him away. Whether in pretense or in truth. Rejoice, saints. Rejoice knowing that the gospel will advance. Because it is the power of God into salvation. And he will lose none. Sinner, I pray. I pray you will know this kind of unshakable, unquenchable joy. And so understanding the truth of Christ. Living to be. The righteousness and dying to bear away the sins of all who would trust in Him. I tell you on the authority of God's holy word. That if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart. That God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. And that's such. I trust by God's grace, we will all rejoice in your salvation and the glorifying of our Lord and Savior Christ. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. That in pretense too often we would even glory in seeking your glory when it's really our own that we're about. Have mercy on us. And thank you for your holy word. How it exposes, reproves and corrects. Father, center our hearts on Christ. May we be zealous for your truth. Yes. But whenever we see brothers err, may we not be so zealous for certain glorious Christ glorifying truths. That we can't rejoice in the truth of Christ and Him proclaimed. Father, thank You for the high privilege of proclaiming Jesus Christ. In His name we ask this and offer this up to you. Amen.